This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we talk about a bill that will reduce fees for people in the juvenile court system. This cash register justice, where if you have money, things go a lot better for you than if you don't. Plus, we get an update on an investigation into the Trump administration's decision to move U.S. Space Command out of Colorado. And we check in on the work of the state's geographic naming board. All that coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Young people going through the juvenile court system in Colorado must pay, on average, $300 in fees and costs just to move their cases through that system. But House Bill 1315, recently passed by the legislature, will eliminate nearly all juvenile fees and costs and forgive $58 million in outstanding court debt. Anne Roan is a criminal defense attorney based in Boulder who helped write it and worked to get it passed. She says this bill, along with a few others passed this session, will reduce economic and racial disparity in the court system. Anne joins us now to talk about these bills and how they'll impact Coloradans going forward. Anne, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. Why did you want to get involved in reforming the juvenile justice system? I've been a lawyer for... 32 years, and I spent 27 of those years with the Colorado Public Defender. And during that time, I represented a lot of kids all over the state, everywhere from Huerfano County to Rio Grande County to Jefferson County. The juvenile system in Colorado is, it's in need of reform. And one of the problems is this cash register justice approach, where if you have money, things go a lot better for you than if you don't. Well, let's talk about House Bill 1315. What what does it do? It gets rid of all fees and costs and surcharges, except for the sex offender surcharge, that are imposed in every single juvenile case across the state. And for those who have already had fees and costs imposed because their cases happened before the effective date of this legislation, it forgives all that debt. Within six months of this bill going into effect, every courthouse across the state has got to identify and get rid of these fees and costs. And if these fees and costs have been referred to a private collections agency, which happens a lot in Colorado, the court is responsible for contacting the private collection agency and telling them that that is no longer a debt that they can pursue. How common is it for states to have these kinds of fees and costs associated with court cases? Is Colorado unique? No. What feels to me like cash register justice happens all over the country. This only became something that people started to talk about after Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson in 2017, the Department of Justice did a deep dive into how the justice system in Ferguson was working and why the racial disparities were so great. And what that study found or what that report found was that it was the use of fees and costs with a sharp racial focus on black members of the community that was a giant part of the problem. And every court in every state imposes fees and costs, but Colorado now is part of a a small emerging group that have abolished juvenile fees and costs. 
And we know that court fees and costs often impact low-income people and people of color the most. How will House Bill 1315 address these disparities? House Bill 1315 wipes the slate clean for everybody, but Black kids and brown kids get hauled into juvenile court at really staggeringly disparate rates. I mean, keep in mind that Black kids make up 5% of Colorado's population, Brown kids are 31% of the state's population, but 17% of all juvenile cases for the last year that data is available were filed against Black kids. So that's a triple the rate that they represent in the population as a whole. 36% were filed against Latinx kids. And it's not just the filings, it's that they are punished far more harshly than white kids. They're initially sentenced far more harshly. You know, for example, in a drug case in juvenile court, 55% of white kids get deferred sentences and just 15% of black kids and 30% of Latinx kids do. 9% of white kids get locked up in the Department of Youth Services, which is Colorado's juvenile prison. 14% of black kids and 13% of Latinx kids get sent to the Department of Youth Services. Just to switch gears a bit, the legislature passed another bill, House Bill 1314, that has to do with driver's licenses. This bill will stop the state from suspending licenses for people who have outstanding court debts. Why was this important for the legislature to address? Before 1314 passed, if somebody, if an adult had outstanding court fees and costs, their driver's license got suspended until those were paid off. And the paradox that presents is obvious. If you need to get money to pay off a court debt, you have to drive to work. And if you don't have a license, it's a catch-22. Interestingly, one of the big stakeholders and supporters of that bill was the Colorado State Patrol, because they see this as a public safety concern. If unlicensed drivers are out on the road, that makes everybody less safe. And so getting rid of that automatic driver's license suspension was a really important step in helping to take away the, the injustice that was in place. It's also worth noting that municipal courts, unlike state courts, will suspend somebody's, will suspend a juvenile's privilege to drive if the juvenile just misses a court date in municipal court. Even if the juvenile is later found completely not guilty, they still have to pay a reinstatement fee to the Department of Motor Vehicles in order to drive a car. And 1314 got rid of all of those practices. And um, it was a really, really important piece of legislation out of this last session. What impact do you expect these bills, uh, 1314 and 1315, to have on Coloradans going forward? One of the impacts that I like a lot is that predatory debt collection agencies are going to have to find another way to make their money. And so that'll stop. Um, The stress and the hardship that are visited on families when a kid gets in trouble and has this debt will go away. And just as importantly, this will put paying restitution to victims. That will make that the first priority. And that's what should be the first priority. 
before this bill passed, a victim didn't see a penny in restitution from the kid who had, you know, broken a window or, or, you know, caused damage to property until the court fees and costs were paid off because the state took that money first. And only after it was satisfied was the victim made whole and that'll go away now. And that is an important step in the right direction. Anne Roan is a criminal defense attorney based in Boulder who helped with writing and passage of House Bill 1315. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Erin. Nearly a year has passed since Governor Jared Polis revived the Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board. That's the 15-member group in charge of reviewing requests to change geographic place names in the state. There are currently more than 20 outstanding place name requests on the docket. KUNC's Ray Solomon has been on the geographic naming beat, and she joins (laughs) us now for a little refresher. Ray, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. I think we should start with why we have this geographic naming board in the first place. Back in the day, we're talking 19th century here. It was really kind of a a wild west of place names. There was nothing official. It was just whatever was in colloquial use, whatever people were saying locally. The map makers would jot that down. And then that would be it, except that sometimes, as you can imagine, there would be conflicting place names and that would cause ensuing confusion. So in 1890, President Benjamin Harrison, he was like, enough. He created the U.S. Board of Geographic Names to sort that all out and standardize the process. And it's now the official national registry. But according to Jennifer Runyon, who's a researcher with that federal board, they are loath to dictate place names without local buy-in. Enter the Colorado Geographic Naming Board. That's the in-state group that deals with these requests to change place names. And they're supposed to consult with like hyper-local groups and get buy-in at that level. Then they give the thumbs up or the thumbs down and pass it back to the national group. Why is this naming board making news right now? In 2016, the board appointments lapsed and no one did anything about it. So the whole group just kind of dissolved without fanfare. Since then, a backlog of more than 20 place name requests have built up. And those include some really high-profile place names that have come under fire for being culturally insensitive. So to address that, last summer, Governor Polis reconvened the board. Mm -hmm. And the new members have spent the past several months just kind of getting their bearings. And now they're just starting to work through that backlog. You mentioned high-profile place names that are up for re-examination. What are those about? Some of those are derogatory racial epithets that I really would prefer not to repeat here. But at least a couple are places named for historical figures with controversial legacies. The highest profile case, of course, is Mount Evans, named for John Evans, the second territorial governor of Colorado. And people are lobbying to rename that peak because he's also known for sparking the infamous Stand Creek Massacre, where hundreds of peaceful Arapaho and Cheyenne were killed by the U.S. Army. What new names have been proposed? Mount Rosalie is one proposal. Mount Sol is another. There's even a proposal to change the name of Mount Evans to Mount Evans. What? (laughs) But this time, instead of honoring John Evans, it would be rededicated to his youngest daughter, Anne Evans, who was much less controversial than her father. And she was really known for backing some of those major Denver cultural institutions, the library, the opera, stuff like that. And then you have proposals from some of the native tribes themselves, like the Northern Cheyenne They've proposed Mount Cheyenne Arapaho to honor the victims of the Sand Creek Massacre. And finally, the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes have put in for Mount Blue Sky. 
Fred Mosquita is Arapaho coordinator for the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes, and here's how he explains that proposal. The Arapahos are known as blue sky people. Well, the Cheyennes have a yearly ceremony. They do, it's like the renewal of life, and it's done before their Sundance, and it's called Blue Sky. Is there any word on when we might get some new place names coming down? Not yet. You know, several months in and the board is still just in that initial research process for the first few proposals. It's just not a quick process. KUNC's Ray Solomon, thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Just before Donald Trump left the White House, the Air Force announced that headquarters for the newly created U.S. Space Command would be moved out of Colorado and built in Alabama. The news spawned allegations of political favoritism and concerns that it could compromise national security. Two investigations are currently underway, and members of the state's congressional delegation are asking the Biden administration to intervene. KUNC military reporter Michael DeOanna has more. In August of 2019, President Donald Trump was flanked by top military leaders in the Rose Garden. This is a landmark day, one that recognizes the centrality of space to America's national security and defense. And they unfurled a new flag for the U.S. Space Command. Not to be confused with the Space Force, Space Command was created to protect what Americans take for granted, a vast network of satellites that provide everything from global positioning to electronic banking. A lot of people don't know this, but we're in a a battle in space. That's Democratic U.S. Senator Michael Bennett. He says Space Command and where it was created, Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, are at the heart of that battle. Moreover, much of the command's support to assess threats and defend U.S. interests is also in the state. Colorado has been critical to to our efforts there, uh, both in terms of the Defense Department, Space Command, but also uh, important and significant intelligence assets for our country and an incredible ecosystem of private sector aerospace. But Space Command appears destined to move out of Colorado. Just days before Trump left office, the Air Force said the command should be headquartered at the Army's Redstone Arsenal near Huntsville, Alabama. Bennett and other members of the congressional delegation cried foul and alleged favoritism. It might have very well been a political decision because Donald Trump was deeply unhappy with um, the fact that Colorado didn't vote for him. The command is expected to create hundreds of additional jobs, and its loss is seen as a hit to Colorado's $7 billion a year military and aerospace economy. It's a reversal of what happened in February of 2020, when hopes were high for the command as Trump visited Colorado Springs in a campaign stop. And you have all of the infrastructure, so you're being very strongly considered for the Space Command. Very strong. During the rally, Trump stood with now former Republican Senator Cory Gardner, And he told the crowd that Governor Jared Polis had approached him about keeping the command in the state. The governor showed up at the plane today, your governor, Democrat. No, no, but in all fairness, he showed up because he wanted to lobby to see if they could get it. That's okay. That's all right. 
And we are going to be making that decision, Corey, when we make that decision, all right? At that time, Air Force administrators were working from a short list of sites, with four in Colorado, including Peterson, along with Redstone in Alabama and a site in California. But just weeks later, Air Force officials announced they would reset the process to make it more transparent and to allow all states to apply. Officials highlighted some of the criteria by which applicants would be judged, like the availability of a qualified workforce, infrastructure, including housing and childcare, community factors, including the quality of schools, and how much it would all cost the Air Force. The process itself does appear to be very flawed. Democratic Congressman Jason Crow represents Colorado's 6th District. And he's a member of the Armed Services Committee. Space Command is a uniquely technological and specialized command that relies very heavily on a civilian and contractor workforce. And Colorado has that in a way that the other states do not. Crow and Bennett also say there are important intelligence capabilities that are critical to the command in Colorado. And moving them could compromise national security. These are concerns that are shared beyond Colorado by the chairs of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. On top of that, Crow and Bennett also allege that President Trump influenced, or perhaps even made, the decision to put the command in Alabama. This, uh, unfortunately, would not be inconsistent with the way that Donald Trump did business as president. Uh, He made everything about politics uh, and promoting, you know, cronyism, cronyism and nepotism. And in the end, you know, a decision was made, I think, in, by the president. Asked about how sure he was that Trump was involved in the decision, Bennett added this. I'm pretty sure that he was in the room when the decision was made. And um, and we'll see. Uh, there's an investigation going on. We'll, we'll see what the results of the investigation are. Two reviews are underway, one by the Defense Department's Inspector General, the other by the Government Accountability Office, the watchdog arm of Congress. And those allegations of favoritism aren't just coming from Democrats. Good morning. We'll uh, call the meeting to order. They've also been leveled by Republican Representative Doug Lamborn of Colorado Springs, who is a staunch Trump supporter. Now, Huntsville has a great history in rocketry, missile defense, and civilian space. But military space is an entirely different world. During a House Armed Services Committee hearing on June 16th, Lamborn doubled down on the allegation, grilling Acting Secretary of the Air Force, John Roth. Our understanding is that this was a political decision made by the last administration, and the Air Force, while initially selecting Colorado Springs, had to go back and scramble to justify a different siding decision. But as far as he knows, Roth said this. I have personally no evidence that the decision was politically motivated. It was the result of our strategic basing process. In one example, Roth noted that a new building would have to be constructed to house command troops in both Colorado and Alabama, and that the costs for doing so are lower in Alabama. But Roth also noted the ongoing investigations. So I will yield to them and and see what, what it is, in fact, they find. Those investigations are expected to wrap up later this year. KUNC reached out to the office of Donald Trump for comment, but our request went unanswered.
Meanwhile, a big if hovers over the move. The Air Force considers Redstone Arsenal its preferred alternative to headquarter the command. But it must clear other hurdles, like environmental assessments, a process that could drag into 2023. And we're going to leave no stone unturned as we as we fight to make sure the right decision uh, is made here. Meanwhile, Senator Michael Bennett says the latest effort in that regard is an invitation to Vice President Kamala Harris to come visit Colorado. And no matter what happens, the command is expected to remain at Peterson Air Base in Colorado Springs for at least the next five years. Michael DeOanna, KUNC. In the new movie, God Exists, her name is Petrunia, a woman creates an uproar when she takes the prize in a men-only ritual. The film comes from Macedonia, and for KUNC film critic Howie Movsovitz, who teaches film at CU Denver, the movie has a typical Macedonian blend of chaos, humor, and serious intent. At times, God Exists, Her Name is Petrunia by Teona Strugar-Matevska is a jumble. It can be brilliant, it can fall off its own track, it can be mystifying, but it's always fascinating and that counts. Movies don't have to be perfect. If they're interesting and full of life, that's enough. Petrunia, Zorika Nusheva, lies in bed under the covers to eat a piece of toast her mother slides into her. She's ashamed of her weight and she has no job. She has a university degree in history, but no one cares about history, which says plenty about the world Petrunia inhabits. She interviews for a job at a sewing factory, where the boss wants to cop a feel, so when she escapes from him, she filches the upper half of a mannequin and heads off. It's a tortured world. At the start of the movie, Petrunia stands motionless in an empty Olympic-sized swimming pool, with lane lines painted on the bottom. Around her are grim apartment blocks, empty factories, and the dry grass of winter. Meanwhile, a priest leads a procession of monks. They're heading for the river for a yearly ritual in which the priest throws a small cross into the water and young men from the town dive in after it. Whoever comes up with the cross will have good luck. It's a wild scene. The priest and the chanting monks stand on a bridge. The priest intones prayers through a squawky bullhorn, and the shirtless young men yell rudely at him to hurry up because it's cold. It's a crazy mix of religion, sacrilege, rowdy young men, a chaotic crowd, and one lonely woman who manages to escape the tumult. Petronia, despised by nearly everyone, watches from underneath the bridge. Then, without warning, but exactly as you know she will, she leaps into the river, dress, coat and all, and snatches the cross. Like many films from this part of the world, the metaphors are so blunt that they radiate the absurdity of the immediate scene and the world itself. The mob hates Petrunia. She's ruined the ritual which is supposed to involve only men. They call her all sorts of names. And you'd think she'd disgrace the town, the church, the name of God, and all of those fanatical and hypocritical young men who proclaim their love of the sacred and cheer the idea of getting drunk when they have the cross. The authorities have no idea who's in charge or what offense Petrunia may have committed. She's taken to the police station where cops scream at her, although one young cop quietly gets her some water. 
A priest tries empty reason on her. The mob of young men outside look like a lynching party. A young TV reporter jumps into the confusion. She sticks her microphone into people's faces and asks off-the-point questions. She's on Petrunia's side and wants somehow to do an expose on how badly Petrunia's been treated, but her intrusions miss the point. What emerges in the movie is the power of Petrunia herself. In all of this wild fray, Petrunia slowly and patiently asks whether she's under arrest and what exactly has she done wrong. Actor Zorika Nusheva sits quietly on a chair. It's an uncanny performance. Her stillness becomes beautiful. And in a film with this fabulous title, God Exists, her name is Petrunia, her composure is the center of elegant, touching serenity that makes the movie transcendent in its unruly way. A couple of characters figure it out. Her presence has made way for a crucial missing element of human life. The movie ends with simple kindness. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mofshevitz. That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.